0: Welcome to Helsinki Open Waves. You are listening to Art, Science, Ecology podcast series conducted by Contemporary Art Commissioning Agency, Ihme Helsinki. My name is Paula Toppila, and I'm the executive director and curator of Ihme Helsinki. I'm happy to chair our advisory board, the members of which will be hosting the six episodes of this podcast series. In this second episode, one of the members, professor Meta Bauer, discusses with artist-researcher Nabil Ahmed, founder of Interpret, about ecocide as an international crime and about how a group of artists, architects and activists can contribute to this process by not only raising awareness, but also by providing evidence of the crime.
1: Hello, my name is Utmeta Bauer. I'm a professor at Nanyang Technological University, where I'm also serving as the founding director of the Center for Contemporary Art. Um, I'm here with you today in my capacity as um, a member of the advisory board of IMHE in Helsinki and it is my pleasure to introduce you to Dr. Uh, Nabil Ahmed who is working um, on, with a group uh, called um, Inter-Pacific Ring Tribunal or Inter-PRT and um, I will ask him today about the work with this um initiative with this project and he will say a little bit more about the nature but first I would like to ask him to introduce himself.
2: Thank you uh, Ute uh, for the introduction and the invitation um, to take part in the the podcast. Um, Yeah hello everybody Um, my name is uh, Nabil and uh, I'm currently a postdoc fellow at the Trondheim Academy of Fine Art uh, at NTNU Uh, Since a number of years, uh, I'm running uh, along with the architect, Olga Luko, uh, Interpret, uh, which is a studio that uses uh, design and spatial analysis to work on environmental justice. Uh, And we are also uh, an organization, uh, a group that's part of the Stop Ecocide uh, campaign, uh, which is working for the recognition of ecocide as an as a as a as an international crime.
1: And, Nabil, let us maybe go a little bit back to the moment when we met each other. You were then you just had finished your PhD that engaged uh, in West Papua, and also on the um, pollution that happens there uh, based on mining, but also the um, of the indigenous community uh, to have a say in the extractivism that's happening on this part um, of um, Papua. So maybe you can say a bit about, like, what triggered you to get engaged in West Papua and what is the trajectory? Because there is obviously um, a continuation um, to your work uh, with um, Interpret and, and to really come to the fore with um demanding that ecocide is seen as um, a crime that can be um, put to trial.
2: Of course, remember giving you my PhD, which traveled then with you to Papua New Guinea. Uh, But more on that in a moment. Um, What happened is that the research I was doing at the Center for Research Architecture uh, at Goldsmiths uh as part of the the origin story of forensic architecture was uh, that, uh, among other trajectories, I was fascinated with the aesthetics and the chemical history of arsenic, a poison that was whose materiality made it a, a potent killer, an environmental killer that moved silently. It was tasteless, colorless, orderless, uh, and it mixed in a hidden manner with, with with the environment, with anything that you would eat or drink or or touch or, or taste. And I was looking at the the assassination of an Indonesian human rights defender, Munir Said Talib, who as I found out, uh, had been poisoned with arsenic uh, on a flight from Jakarta to Amsterdam. When he was on this flight, he he was upgraded by a mysterious uh, Garuda airline staff member. And uh, he had a glass of orange juice and then something to eat. By the time... The plane landed in Amsterdam, he was dead. And the forensic report showed that the death was by arsenic poisoning. It was an example of um, the Indonesian secret police acting with impunity by killing one of the most celebrated human rights defenders from the Suharto era in such a way by using not polonium or not uh, any fancy. Uh, 21st century poison, but a 19th century poison, which apparently had been captured in the Victorian courtrooms when forensic toxicology entered the fray by inventing an apparatus uh, that would stop the, uh, that would show the poison's colors through a chemical test and present it as evidence in the courtroom. So I was really interested in this forensic history and how it sort of connected to this body of Munir. I made a narrative and and, and a jump where I found out that uh, um, you know f- how to move from Munir's body to the body of the earth, and this was when when I found out that that there was a dispute. Uh, there was a disputed territory of West Papua. You know, in Indonesia, uh, where the world's combined largest gold and copper mine was located, and most people didn't know about it. Uh, it kind of blew my mind a little bit that uh, that this is that this can be sort of happening. And uh, what happened is that I sort of dedicated the the tail end of the PhD, um, where we were developing um, new forensic. Uh, and spatial sort of techniques by combining, let's say, satellite imagery analysis, which had been, of course, been used for many years and as a as a way to monitor environmental destruction. Uh, but how to then bring it into a kind of um, into a kind of activist practice, where this kind of analysis can be actually combined with uh, slowly over time with um, engaging with. Uh, impacted groups, opening up new forums, um, pushing for legal change, uh, and and, um, bringing all of this together in in formats that can be presented in in multiple sort of spaces, such as um, including exhibitions. Uh, So so this was something new and uh, an emerging way for me to to work in this investigative manner where these things can be combined. And that's kind of what... uh, um, where the um, the work on West Papua sort of began, and and where I'm, you know, to this day, working on and dedicated to, uh, after years of gaining trust, getting to know people, uh, going there, and uh, um, and sort of staying involved and being active. So so that sort of set the the, the stage, if you'd like, for uh, interpret to to form. Of course, this is where you come in.
1: I was actually given your contact and what you're working on through um, an artist that we both know quite well, Armin Linke, and he pointed to me when um, I asked him and invited him to join me on a series of um, research trips, field trips into Pacific literals and um, and he said, actually, we should invite Nabil because he works not on um, Papua New Guinea, but on West Papua. But still, um, this history might, we might get a different point of entry, including him. But then um, we were too much forward with this, um, the planning, it wasn't possible. But then the year after um, our this project, um, the, the current uh, supported by TPA Academy, brought us to uh, French Polynesia, actually on the days of the 50th anniversary of the um, nuclear testing, the 193 nuclear tests above and below um, ocean, um, the the sea level. And then I asked you and invited you if if you could also be interested in in joining us on, on, on this trip uh, given your experience, to look also into evidence and uh, the forensic components um, of, um, as then the keyword was uh, anthropogenic interventions in the environment, and um, luckily um, you you fortunately you could find the time and you joined, and um, which was. Very instrumental in order to create also um, a connection to the law department of the University of Tahiti to um, Hervé Lamont, who also um, does inquiries into um, the interference into the environment um, through the um, one couldn't say post-colonial power because there's still uh, it's still a, a special occupied territory. But uh, so you made this connection and um, we started to engage also more the long-term impact of these interventions in the Pacific. And of course, French Polynesia is not alone in this. So that probably brought you also to the Marshall Islands.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think I just, as I sort of hear you speak, no, it, it I mean, of course, I, I totally connect, but, but also made me think that it was a moment uh, you know, for for myself, I think a, a lot of us, right? That um, many more passages sort of opened. But what happened is that I, I still went back to West Papua, you know, in a sense, because um, wherever I've gone, and I've sort of said that I work on West Papua, doors opened, smile, people smiled, and they just sort of allowed me in, uh, because it was the same, it was a different story, but nevertheless connected to these stories of. Anti-colonialism, anti-nuclear struggles, anti-mining, uh, anti-climate impunity, and so on. So, 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 so a connection was made, and and I was trying to make sense of how to uh, um, bring that into growing the practice. So, so this is where two things happened. Uh, one was that when when I started to look at this mine of West Papua, I sort of zoomed out. And uh, just started to look at mines where there's conflicts similar to West Papua, in Papua New Guinea, but also across the Pacific to, to places like Peru and Chile. And this is kind of where the idea that, like, actually, um, the story of West, the mine in West Papua is, of course, really particular to that place, but it also connects to a bigger story of fighting against capitalism, fighting against state violence that the indigenous people of West Papua had been dedicated to, to doing. This is sort of the moment where the um, opening up, in a way, to the geology of the Pacific and uh, um, and the Pacific ring, uh, and to reimagine it as a space of conflict uh, come, came in.
1: Does it not also connect us to um, colonial histories, this, this idea that there are, I mean, the Tuamutus um, uh, where we went, um, in, in, um, French Polynesia in, in translation, it means distant Island, distant islands, you know, like this, this idea of going somewhere and see, um, this, the the very notion of the idea of the colony and then the idea of like, um, slavery of, of, like, linking it to owning people, to own the lands that are not yours, um, to basically instrumentalize people um, in in this kind of, like, what you call capitalism, but it's also um, extractivism or, like, what Donna Haraway calls it, instead of the Anthropocene, the Capitalocene. To me, what was Interesting. I mean, I did not know so much about West Papua. Of course, we know there are um, mines, etc. But like, it is very distant to us usually. But then to see the systemic violence um, that continues, we always, I uh, think, the colonial times are like. We have to engage now in the post-colonial. But to a certain extent, uh, the neo-colonialism continues um, in in this kind of uh, entitlement of uh, exploiting um, land and people and nature and and, uh, and and humans. So maybe you can say a little bit like, I mean, giving the fact that you have this experience, like you had been engaging long-term in um, West Papua through your PhD, but also to relationship with the independence movement, then coming to French Polynesia, and we we're talking to lawyers, but we also met when we were there, um, um, the initiative, the 193 initiative, and Roland, and then also Bruno Barillo, I mean, people who long time would engage um, in the injustice um, that that is connected to that. And then uh, from there, you embarked further into this, because maybe you can say a little bit about also the relationship that you developed to Roland and to Bruno Barillo.
2: Well, you've used the word neocolonialism, and what uh, we know that has clearly happened in the Marshall Islands and French Polynesia, uh, to give two examples, is also um, what what is known as a, a kind of nuclear colonialism, too. While the scales and um, sorts of environmental violence in places like West Papua and French Polynesia might be um, different. You know, the the word, a word that can come to to stand for this uh, injustice has been uh, ecocide, a term that's often used and colloquially used in many places, but a word that carries with it a kind of legal weight, uh, which has yet to be explored. And uh, this is where um, uh, the other side of the practice sort of came in, which is a question that we were thinking, how do we contribute doing what we do as artists, activists, researchers, facial practitioners, uh, architects, how do we contribute? Uh, and in a sense, um, the, conversations and what we were what I was hearing what we were there all together in French Polynesia was to see um for example uh what could be new ways of telling these stories. Let's say, you know, that someone like Bruno Barriot who had dedicated his life to making things visible when it comes to the nuclear catastrophe that French Polynesia uh, had suffered for so long uh, he he as we found out um along with um Steffi Hessler uh, that that you know he had written um many books and he had been on the front line of um, bringing this issue to not only public attention but working for the um for the pro independence political party the Tabini Hulitare, when they were in power to actually Coordinate and lead the work of seeking justice on the nuclear weapons testing program in French Polynesia, but it felt like there was perhaps um, other ways of telling or new ways of of telling this story, which is actually similar to what uh, happened in in our case in West Papua. As I got to know many of the activists and independence leaders uh, um, and NGO. Um, people internationally in the UK, Indonesia, and West Papua that had been working for West Papua for so long, you know, much longer than than, than I had, you know, what I brought to the table, what, what Interpret brought to the table was, again, to be able to tell these stories through new methods such as spatial analysis and visualization and forensic architecture.
1: To connect to that, I mean, it was kind of like groundbreaking when in 2017, the Wanganui River was um, accepted as a legal entity uh, by the New Zealand uh, courts, by like means through the New Zealand legal system that actually a river can serve as a legal body. And that means like nature could also demand a trial. So that brought us, and we discussed this even like on some of our trips um, what is the possibility of like establishing a legal framework? And we talked about this about with the international law of the sea, with deep sea mining, and like how who owns this, who owns the ocean, who, like in the case, of course, of land, it's more obvious. But then still, who owns it? Is land owned by the people or by a government? Or can it be privatized? So these are um, very fundamental questions. And um, today there's also, um, I would say, an, an, um, a field um, that is called elemental politics, where rights of nature and, and um, the right of indigenous people is really for the first time put more into the spotlight. And um, you coming with this background also of um, forensic evidence, spatial analysis, can you maybe say a little bit like um, about also the notion of what could be evidence? Then also if you go for ECHO site, where would you put it on trial and like against whom?
2: You know, today it is more conceivable and it's becoming more acceptable, normal that a river has rights, you know, in kind of, not necessarily in indigenous conceptions, obviously these ideas are very, very old, but in uh, the global north, in in sort of the legal institutions. As we know, this this was also led uh, to much fanfare in Ecuador with the with the rights of nature getting its recognition um and then Bolivia um but of course the political reality in Ecuador as we know didn't stand necessarily stand up uh, or live up to that um so it is more acceptable today and i think this is really really important and it, and and it should give us and bring hope uh in the face of the multiple crises that, 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 um, that the world faces and how ecocide, uh, I mean, you use the term elemental, uh, politics, um, but also how they sort of fit into what is known as earth jurisprudence. So they're not the same thing, but they're sort of sisters, you know, complementary sort of legal, political sort of ideas, right. That, that of course take, um, are rooted in, in, in many sense, indigenous sort of thoughts and cosmologies, and and of course, it's a it's a really a clear example, right? Where where um, you know those cosmologies and ideas have so much to give to to how we um, in, in order for us to deal with the, the the challenges that we face. So so that's sort of like one uh, um, connection, right? That that I feel that let's say something like. Um, rights of nature makes with ecocide. But of course this gets problematized by the fact that ecocide sort of biography really um, begins with not earth jurisprudence as such, but in the field of international criminal law, which is anthropocentric by definition. And so it is a challenge and there's many fault lines, where um, and meeting points too, where the recognition of environmental destruction and environmental harm to bring that within the framework of international criminal law is is a great challenge that that has received a lot of pushback, you know, over the many decades, right? But this is, I think, where the question of evidence comes in. A crime needs both its name, its definition, its elements, but also its evidence uh, and its judgment. So it is in this space that we operate, right? Where uh, uh, I think a question, of course, that we've asked ourselves for a long time, what counts as evidence, really? I think it's a question that we have to constantly ask ourselves. And in that tension, uh, and is, 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 I think it's a really productive place. So, um, so, of course, this is where, let's say, you know, technocratic, you know, sort of technologies, such as satellite imagery, um, how that can actually, you know, convince um, and push forward legal definitions and conceptions, right, is, is really uh, a, a kind of a fascinating place, which is, I think, where, where we're sort of operating.
1: I mean, that brings us back to what you said, like the Victorian uh, era that suddenly uh, was capable through um, chemical um, tests to make visible a former invisible killer, arsenic. So satellite um, photography can make visible acidification of oceans, um, heat areas like, you know, like where, where we see illegal activities like of deforestation etc for like remote sensing can make uh, visible illegal fishing in the ocean where you cannot reach otherwise with a fleet as fast as um, those who, who the pirating um, fishing um, industry is moving so to a certain extent it's very interesting as you say that uh, technology, uh, can play into both sides, like in the hands of both sides, you know, like it, it's the more advanced technology is, the better we can exploit and the more we can exploit uh, the ocean on the other side, technology can also help us to create evidence on, on the same terms. I think it's very helpful, as you say, to find finally a tool set that allows us to think um almost in a technocratic way, um, like, as you say, and in a forensic way, to put evidence on the table. And then, of course, I think where to go from there is another question, but, like, if this evidence is on the table, it cannot be denied, and it needs to be addressed in one way or the other.
2: It's a simple fact that if something... Such as ecocide is not recognized as a crime, then there is not a forum, a legal case to make with it. So, for instance, um, the past couple of years, uh, we have worked very closely with um, with some of the leading international criminal lawyers who who are working on um, environmental justice. Uh, we we work closely with uh, we partner with a with a a foundation called Climate Council, uh, that is um, led by the uh, Richard Rogers, who who, who remains the, the first uh, uh, lawyer to have submitted a communication to the prosecutor's uh, office at the ICC, of the International Criminal Court, where uh, land grabbing uh, and associated crimes against humanity were brought to the attention of uh, the ICC, of, of a case in Cambodia. Uh, so so as it goes, the prosecutor's office can receive what are called communications uh, from civil society groups. So a, a case can be opened, an investigation can be opened by the prosecutor. We have a new prosecutor now, uh, Karim Khan, who's about to start in June uh, after Fatou, Fatou Ben Souda um, uh, was the prosecutor for a number of years. It can be triggered by the Security Council. You know, it can be brought by the the, the the prosecutor himself or herself, but it can also be uh brought to the attention of the prosecutor's office through communications, um, which is enshrined in the Rome statute, the 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 body of law that that sort of governs the the um the, the four core international crimes genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes, and crimes of aggression. Of course, ecocide is missing. And that's where where we're working on this question of of where do you take that evidence is crucial, right? Because, because there isn't a place to take it, um, so as to speak. So this is where the gap becomes a productive space for us. And in uh, many things we do is, is actually focused on on, in spite of this gap, to, to create these forums. So, so of course, there was an idea that uh, there would be these performative uh, tribunals, if you'd like. But I, I sort of soon found out that that's uh, easier said than done. And that is not to sort of make a performance, but to take it seriously requires so much attention. It has to be brought by the groups that are on the front lines that, um, that, that it sort of took different turn Manifestations, and one of them has been the work that we've been doing um, with the uh, Stop Ecoside campaign with Polly Higgins, and um, and and I think this is what's really important is that is that uh, we we sort of became part of this much bigger uh, conversation.
1: Although it started like as you said, like it's linking to your um, studies as a architect and um, as a scholar in the field as you say of spatial analysis and um, coming from a context of like what is called forensic architecture and um, i think it's um very interesting that you then join forces with um a legal person uh, as you said polly higgins who was a barrister uh, beside of being an activist and and, and a writer So basically to join forces uh, in terms with somebody who has a legal background, I think was um, a real critical step forward. And as you said, unfortunately, um, Polly Higgins is no more um, with us, but I think her work and and, and that you kind of continue also gained quite some steam and and some more visibility, uh, fortunately, when also the... um, ambassador to England of uh, Manuatu, um, John Lichter, basically um, brought forward to the international court, if I understood correctly, um, that ecocide should be considered a crime. I mean, I read about it in The Guardian um, when um, John Lichte um, brought forward this notion of There is something called an ecocide, and it should be tried in an international court. So I think that is already quite a move in, yes, it's three, four years, and it's based on the work of many much longer before, but it made that move.
2: And it's growing uh, strength to strength. The... A big moment was uh, in 2010 uh, when uh, Polly Higgins basically revived this idea of ecocide uh, from the 70s, when it was used to decry and and stand up against the environmental crimes of the American forces in Vietnam. But uh, it was revived to 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 give a name and to face up to the climate crisis uh, by Polly and and. Uh, jurists such as Valérie Caban in in France uh as as, as to to name another um uh, legal mind who's been working on this but what has happened is that over between uh and I started working with Polly um around 2017 uh but but w- what what we had been doing and what I joined uh what we joined her, you know the the Solicitors campaigns efforts was that um It's one thing to, to, to use the term colloquially or to call something ecocide, et cetera, but, but it's another to actually go to the forum, to bring change, uh, and where we had been diligently active, the background of the movement, if you'd like, it has a public facing campaign, but it also has a, has a background team. And that has been working, um, to build relationships and build networks and bring connections. Between politicians and diplomats and lawyers and 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 uh, and and all all sorts of other folks, um, to to take an active role at the Assembly of State Parties of the ICC, which is where Ambassador Licht made his his speech uh, in in two thousand nineteen. Uh, so the Assembly of State Parties is the governing body of the ICC. It, it is it is where the judges uh, are decided and the prosecutor is elected and. Uh, the budgets are organized it's where the state parties and their diplomats come uh together uh the, the meeting happens in new york the un headquarters and also in in the hague um so so this is where uh we we have been very 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 active and vanuatu uh for uh, through the um, work of Eli van Veel, who is the um, honorary consul of Vanuatu to the Netherlands, who is part of the our campaign, um, we, we we came to uh, uh, Polly and and the campaign made a connection with Vanuatu as as not by coincidence, but as one of the frontline countries in climate change, and the government of Vanuatu, um, up until recently uh, led by or Ralph Reagan Vanu as its foreign minister, play, has played a, a very decisive and, and leadership role in keeping this issue alive. Um, so the way the ASP works is that unless you are working with a state, if you're a civil society group, such as we were, we wouldn't uh, uh, stand uh, much of a chance. It's, it's so, so what happened is that, you know, this new way of coalition building was taking place where you had, you know, the campaign uh, that is today led by Jojo Meta. Um, um, you had um, countries like Vanuatu. Uh, more NGOs started joining, um, such as um, uh, Global Witness, Amnesty, Greenpeace, uh, the Heinrich Boll Foundation, who has been really supportive, and and there was a momentum that grew, right? And in that conversation, of course. Uh, we, we were the only group, uh, and of course, the, the Institute for Environmental Security, very important organization that has been fighting the environmental corner at the ASP from the beginning. We, we were the only group that actually talk about the environment and, and this ecocide pushing for it at the ASP. And uh, and within that group, it's been a, a, a interpret and myself have been also bringing the perspective of, of evidence, uh, spatial practice and artistic research, which has been, uh, which, which I feel that, you know, can also make a contribution in this, in this new coalition.
1: I mean, I think it's also important to, um, as you, again, to say it's very complex, um, conditions and circumstances, because we're talking, of course, also like on the one side, colonialism, but it's also like globalization and, <clears throat> that it's of course there are many global and international interests involved, and uh, that makes it also complex. Um, but maybe also it offers an opportunity, because while maybe at the local, in the local context, as we know, uh, the political situations. Situation might often not be uh, a democratic one, Um, but the companies involved often come from democratic countries. So, you know, the the complexity on the one side makes it tricky, but it also might offer a point of entry. Because, like, if you're like a a multinational corporation and you're based uh, in the EU, or like you're Canadian or you're Australian, your environmental record might be a point for your for the voters of a country. You know, so there might be there is a point of entry where um, kind of like it, it's it's no more possible to to not be put on the floor. I think like if we look back to to for example the murder on Ken saro Viva in Nigeria. Um, in the involvement um, with um, oil companies, with a former colonial power. While that um, in this period um, did not lead very far, I think today that's no more possible. I think there is uh, much more also global reaction to this if people start more to connect the dots. So I think uh, what you do with Interpret and, and in collaboration, with um, so many um, active forces, actually has the chance to get somewhere.
2: We are at this moment, right, where um, human environmental defenders are being persecuted and and killed at a rate that has never been seen before. So, so it is absolutely not a time to uh, um, to, to I suppose to say, well, um, the job is done. On the contrary. I think this as there has uh, never been a more more crucial moment where where we simply can't uh, um, not act
1: unfortunately I think our short time of this podcast is over but I think it's um it's a concern of this earth and a concern because that is the livelihood for for all of us and not just for us uh, for our life forms uh, on this planet um, is actually on the stake. And I think uh, with the current pandemic um, that so fast um, reached um, around the globe, uh, created another awareness and um, also an awareness in in a much wider percentage of populations that um, something that starts maybe small somewhere far away uh, can have an impact of each and any of us. And so I'm still very hopeful. And I really hope, Nabil, um, you and Interpret and, and all the people you have been involved in um, really can stay put and, and really continue this and because it's so critical. So I really thank you and I hope we can continue this conversation maybe in the future. And I really hope also our audience um, feel, feels encouraged to get engaged and involved um, wherever they are.
2: Thank you so much, Ute.
0: We are happy to share recommendations for further reading by our podcast guests. Nabil Ahmed would like to recommend a book called East West Street by Philip Sands. This book is partly origin story of international justice, partly true crime nonfiction. According to Nabil, quote begins, East West Street unfolds the intertwined personal and intellectual biographies of the two lawyers who respectively coined the terms genocide and crimes against humanity. It is a profound meditation on law as culture and the culture of law, a gripping read on its own terms and also instructive for anyone thinking critically about future laws in the context of climate disruption. End of quote. Thank you for listening to Art Science Ecology podcast by Ihme Helsinki. In the next episode, Hanna Johansson, Dean of Fine Arts Academy of University of Arts in Helsinki, will have a conversation with Tracy War, Head of Research for Dartington Art School, about ecological transition of an art school. The podcast was produced in collaboration with Helsinki Open Waves. Please give us feedback via the link at description. If you like the podcast, follow it at Spotify Review and subscribe the program at the Apple Podcast so others will find it as well.